Well, hello, friends. You're listening to the Capital City Christian Church Podcast. I'm Chris, the Communications Director at Cap City. And if this is your first time listening or you just want to say hi, you can email me at ctaylor at capitalcitychristian.org. We're in a summer preaching series about the things that made Jesus mad. Looking in scripture, we can find several examples where Jesus got mad and there was a general theme behind each occurrence. Somebody was trying to put a wedge between God and someone else. Today we're looking at a memorable story from the book of John. There's a woman who was caught in the act of adultery and dragged out in front of Jesus and a growing crowd of people. Some very judgmental people looked at Jesus and said, what should we do with this woman? Well, Jesus didn't quite give them the answer that they expected. Let's get to the heart of why Jesus hates judgmentalism with our senior minister, Dr. Stephen Doc Pattison. Campfire Sunday, isn't that cool? Now, by the way, you probably didn't see him if you're coming in, but if you go out under our front porch and then just keep going and sneak around to the right, there's some places there where you can cook s'mores, okay? They've got them right there. In fact, we've got this kind of a new little thing that I'm eager to try out. It's kind of cool. It's actually a marshmallow with a chocolate inside. You can roast them both at the same time. You got to go try that out, okay? Pretty cool. Welcome to Capital City. Really glad that you're here, whether you're here in person or whether you're connecting with us online. It's a weird, weird time that we're living in. We need to be connecting with each other. We need to be connecting with our God, right? It's huge. God did not make us to go it alone. Now, guys, we're in kind of a strange place as a church family. In some ways, as a church family, we are doing remarkably well. I mean, I don't have a good explanation for it, but even though we did not have in-person services for a couple, three months, even though our numbers now are half what they were in January, February, financially, our church is quite strong. We're, we've held our spending down. Believe it or not, we're above budget in our giving. We're still investing in ministry. All I can say is we have an amazing God and we have some incredibly God-honoring people. Thank you, guys. That is flat-out cool. And during the time we couldn't meet in person, we greatly expanded our reach online. And now that we are back meeting in person, even though it may not look like that to some of you guys, we're actually busting the curve. I read one report last week that said that churches that are reopening are seeing 15, 20, 25% of their people coming back. Randy and I think the number's a little bit higher, around 30% from what we can tell. Here at Cap City, we're holding right at about 50% right now. It's incredible. And we are still trying to strengthen our online ministry. And you know what's better than all that? We got a baptism this morning. Isn't that cool? Because that's what we're all about. In fact, at the CIY events that we sponsored a week ago, 25 kids made some kind of a decision to to step up their following Jesus. Some of them for the first time, others to step it up. It's just so cool. And so in, thank you. In some ways, guys, Capital City is doing remarkably well. In other ways, we have a baptism this morning. I can't tell you how excited I am. So it absolutely breaks my heart that this will be the first time we use that baptistry since March the 8th, four and a half months ago. And even though we are breaking the curve with our in-person attendance, 50% of our people are back, and that breaks my heart. 
Don't get me wrong. I understand that many of those still following online need to be extra cautious. And I am not criticizing anybody's choice to protect yourself physically or to protect those that you're caring for. Breaks my heart because I want more for you. I think you want more for you. I hope, I think God wants more for you. And I hope you miss being here, and I hope that being here is something worth missing because we were made to do life with God shoulder to shoulder, face to face. My study partner, Randy, and I were talking about this last week, and our theory is that our church families have kind of clustered into four different groups. One group, since this thing all started, has just disconnected from church. The numbers are scary high of those who have simply disconnected. They're no longer here. They're not online. Church has just kind of faded away for them. Second group has kind of decided they like church online, kind of better than in person. After all, how cool is that? Pajamas and coffee in church, right? And if you want to sleep in, just fire up the service later whenever it's convenient for you. Online is enough. They've decided. A third group is doing church online, but they hope dearly that it's temporary. Maybe it's simply the best that you can do right now. You're one of those who needs to be extra cautious. You're taking care of somebody who needs you to be extra cautious. Or maybe you just don't think we're being cautious enough right now. We understand that. We really do. And then there's a fourth group, those who are back in person in Cap City, greater numbers than in the vast majority of church families. And if it sounds like I care about numbers, guys, I do. I care about numbers a lot. You know why? Because every number is a person. I care about how many we baptize because people need Jesus. I care about how many people are here in person and how many people are connecting with us online. Because as long as there are people out there who need God's grace and God's love, we have work to do. And so whenever the numbers are down, it creates an atmosphere where it's pretty easy to get discouraged, even to feel sorry for yourself. And I've been battling, battling discouragement. And I wish you could remember the energy, the momentum that we had January and February. We had the strongest start to the year we've ever had here at Capital City. Feeling sorry for yourself doesn't do any good, does it? doesn't get the job done. And we still have a job to do. We're on a mission from God still. Bring people face-to-face -face with Jesus and to grow them up into Christ-driven 24-7 Jesus followers. So what is this church family going to look like in three months, six months, a year? I don't know. But I know that we're going to try to figure out how to get it done no matter what the new normal looks like. But guys, it's more than the pandemic itself that has troubled our church family. There are tears in the fabric of this church family right now, fractures that threaten to divide us. In fact, right before Jesus died, he prayed this prayer. He says, I pray, God, that they may all be one, Father. They may, that, may they be in us just as you are in me and I am in you. May they be one so that the world will believe that you sent me. And that's how important it is, guys. If they can't see us being one, they won't believe in the Jesus that we follow. At least we're going to make it way harder for them. And this family is becoming less and less one, more and more polarized. We're tearing at each other because of these masks, right? Some here see these as more politics than science, more about a government bent on overreach and control than a reasoned response to a very real risk. 
Others here see these as a simple sign of love, just loving someone else. Is it too much to ask? They ask. And instead of showing grace towards each other, those who don't see our truth, we tear each other apart. And I know I've oversimplified it. If you want, I can lay out the case for both sides. I can make a compelling case for both sides. And now it's not just the pandemic. This church family is divided over racial issues that are tearing our country apart right now. Demonstrations, demands different groups are making. There are Cap City people on both sides. If it actually erupted into violence, God forbid, Cap City people would be trying to hurt each other. What divides us is threatening to overwhelm what holds us together. And guys, that is awful. And there's an election coming. Do you think this polarization is going to get worse? I do. Guys, our differences are not the problem. Of course we're going to disagree. I don't even agree with myself half the time. It's not our disagreements. It's the vitriol. The judgmentalism that will tear us apart. It's when we condemn and denounce one another, when we vilify and disparage one another, when we mock and ridicule each other, even online. As we let what we disagree over dismantle the bond that holds us together. Jesus said, I pray, I pray that they may be one, Father. May they be in us just as you are in me and I am in you. May they be one. You know why? So the world will believe that you sent me. This sin, this sin of judgmentalism that has gripped so many of us is tearing at the church. And it's going to undermine the mission of our church. I'll show you. Now we're in week four of a study on things that made Jesus mad. Now I know that's not the way a lot of people want to picture Jesus. You know, Jesus didn't go around mad, angry, looking for a fight, but he did get mad whenever someone blocked access to his father. When we push someone away from the father's love, it makes Jesus mad. He got mad in the temple when they turned the court of the nations, the court of the Gentiles, into a shopping mall, preventing the Gentiles from connecting with God. We talked about that three weeks ago, if you want to go catch up online. Two weeks ago, we talked about a conversation Jesus had with a Samaritan woman. He actually had to send the disciples away for that conversation. I think he was afraid their prejudice against this woman would push her away from God's grace. He hates it when any of our prejudices push anybody away from God's grace. That was two weeks ago. Jesus got mad when they tried keeping the kids away from him. They were marginalizing the kids. They were treating the kids as if they were not as important as the adults. It made Jesus mad. That was last week. Today's about judgmentalism. Judgmentalism makes Jesus mad. And we're going to look at one of my favorite Jesus stories in the Gospels. It's a powerful, powerful story about a woman who is known as the woman caught in adultery. How would you like to be known by your sin, by your biggest sin? She is the woman caught in adultery, the woman caught in the act. Randy calls her the naked woman. Jesus and the naked woman. That may be the most poignant and evocative of the titles. Here's the story. 
Jesus is in Jerusalem, the capital near the temple. It seems to be the Feast of the Tabernacles when the Jews would camp out in tents for a while to remember what it was like during the Exodus when they were heading for their promised land. Tens of thousands of Jewish pilgrims would flood into Jerusalem and they'd swarm the temple every day. And so here it is. It says, early the next morning, Jesus was back again at the temple. A crowd gathered. Wherever Jesus went, crowds would gather. And he sat down and he began to teach them. Probably in that court of the Gentiles we talked about a couple weeks ago. And this crowd is gathering. Verse 3. As he was speaking, teachers of the religious law and the Pharisees, they brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. And they put her in front of the crowd. She'd been caught in the act in the act of adultery. My understanding, adultery usually takes two, right? So where's the guy? Maybe he's stronger, maybe he's faster, maybe he was able to get away, or maybe they simply didn't care as much about his sin as they did about hers, because in that world there were double standards like that. Or maybe it's really not even about her. Maybe she's just a pawn in order to trap Jesus. Maybe she meant nothing to them. I don't know. What I do know is that they wanted to shame and humiliate her so they could shame and humiliate Jesus. So I seriously doubt they gave her any time to make herself presentable after being caught in the act of adultery. I seriously doubt they wanted her to look anything other than wanton, lascivious, and lewd. So they dragged this naked woman if not literally naked, certainly in every other way, they drag her into the temple. They put her in front of the crowd. In other words, they drag her right up here in front of all you guys and present her right here. Now, how would you feel? It is the worst, the lowest, the most embarrassing moment of your life, and someone catches you in that moment. I don't know what your moment was, but somehow, right at that moment, the lights come up, iPhones come out, people start clicking pics. You're up on the screen. Everybody turns and looks at you. Can you picture the worst moment in your life? Maybe you said something that you just can't get out of your head. It was so vile, so blasphemous, so cruel. Maybe it's a sexual sin. And you're caught in the act, adultery, porn, whatever. Maybe it's a moment that you hit bottom because of some, adult, some addiction. Or maybe it's some moment when you just flat out lost your temper, anger, rage, even violence. Or maybe someone is able to get a snapshot of you when your unforgiveness and your bitterness was so apparent. And you're caught in the act and you're brought up here and you're put on display. Now think about it, guys. What would be worse at that moment to be dragged out into the street in front of your neighbors? Or would it be to be dragged in front of your enemies so they could gawk and gloat? Or would it be to be dragged here into a church in front of your church family where we could look at you? How would we respond to the sinner when their sin is exposed to all of our eyes? What would they see in our eyes? One guy, he calls it gracism. Gracism. I didn't really like the word, but I can't think of a better one. It's kind of like racism, but racism is about the color of your skin. Gracism, he says, is about the color of your sin. 
Racism is when you put a person in a box because God colored them differently and then you diss them. Gracism is about putting people in a box because their sin is different than yours. Their sin you judge to be worse than yours and then you diss them. In other words, gracism is about wanting God to follow your lead, right? You want him to grace the people that you want to grace and you want him to smoke the people that you want smoked, right? Because there are some sins that we judge to be worse than others. And I've lost my temper many times, but I've never killed anybody physically. I battled lust once, I think, maybe twice. That's humor, by the way. But I've never committed adultery physically. That'd be worse, wouldn't it? I mean, I've said some pretty hurtful things. But I have rarely ever in my life cussed out loud like some of you guys. We act like some sins are way worse than others, right? Nah. Guys, this is about as basic as it gets. This is what the Bible says. It says everyone has sinned. Any exceptions? Everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. You know what that means? You know what the consequences of that is? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin, the wages of all sin, the wages of our sin is death, which means that the only shot we've got is the next line. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? Which means none of us, none of us have the right to be judgmental. Now, this next part might be a little bit of a stretch, but I, I kind of wonder whether or not this naked woman made Jesus think of his mom. I don't think of it like that. It's not what I mean. What I mean is that they're judging this woman, this so-called Mary, because they called Mary an adulteress too, right? I mean, she was engaged and pregnant, which made, in that world, Mary an adulteress. No one was going to believe her virgin birth story. You wouldn't maybe until the resurrection. Which meant that in their eyes, she deserved to be right here, dragged naked into the street so everybody could see her sinfulness. A little different, but maybe you've been there. Holy and loved by God, but judged and despised by people. Ever been there? Back to our story. They're ready to spring the trap. Teacher, they say to Jesus, this woman is caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says, stoner, what do you say? And they had him. Because in their minds, Jesus was renowned for loving sinners. And if he told them to stoner, maybe he'd lose the crowds. But if he told them not to stoner, then he was breaking the law of Moses. And how could he break the laws of Moses and be speaking for God? And this isn't one of those little laws, right? This is one of those big ten, one of those ten commandments. Remember those Ten Commandments? How many of them can you name? You could probably name, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery, and I think there's a couple of others, right? Those are the ones we remember. And and the law is very clear. If you're reading their law, they're supposed to die. They're supposed to die by stoning, which didn't mean to them what oftentimes you think it means. Fact is, their law books tell us that they were supposed to dig a pit and they were to shove the girl into the pit. If she died from the fall, so be it. If she's still alive, then the two witnesses who had caught her, because there were supposed to be two witnesses to catch her in the act, they'd pick up a stone. We're not talking about the little tiny rocks that Ernest T. Bass throws through windows. 
It was supposed to pick up something that is heavy enough to crush somebody, raise it above them, plummet it down on them from into the pit. And if she's dead, that's enough. If she survives your stones, all of the rest of the people are supposed to join in. Serious stuff. Serious. So they're trying to trap Jesus into saying something they could use against him. And what does Jesus do? He, he kneels down and he starts writing in the dirt. I kind of wish that someone had snapped a picture right at that moment. Wouldn't you like to know what he was writing in the dirt? I always have. They've written all kinds of books about what Jesus might have been writing in the dirt. It's pretty cool. They're just playing tic-tac-toe. No, that's humor. Probably not. Doodling? Maybe. Some people actually think Jesus was writing down the Ten Commandments, and then maybe next to the commandments, he was writing the names of the people he was seeing doing the judging, saying, oh, you got this one, don't you? I don't know. One guy actually said he thought Jesus wrote Menemenetekel Parson. And in case you don't know what those words are, they're found in Daniel chapter 5, words that God wrote on a wall with his finger about a king. And it basically means numbered twice, numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided. Your days have been numbered, you've been weighed, you've been measured, and you've been found wanting. So your kingdom's about to be divided. It'd be a fitting message to these guys who are bringing this woman out. Your days are numbered, right? You've been measured by God and found wanting, and your kingdom's coming down. In fact, I kind of think that a lot of you guys might want to put this one in your own quiver. The words that are useful for us, right? Okay, kid doesn't do his homework. Many, many tackle parson. Husband, forget your anniversary. Many, many tackle parson, right? Your, your days are numbered. You've been found wanting, and you're going down. Maybe Jesus is doing something bigger than all that stuff. He kneels down, and he starts doodling in the dirt, and they wait. And their leering and sneering eyes gradually drift from her to Jesus. And I suspect the longer Jesus waited, the quieter it got. Now where are their eyes? On her shame? Probably not so much. Now where are their minds? On her sin? Probably not so much. Maybe for a moment, Jesus literally forces them to stop judging her. Wouldn't that be cool? Well, they kept demanding an answer, so Jesus stood up again and he said, okay. But let the one who has never sinned, you cast the first stone. And then he knelt down and began writing in the dirt again. Where were Jesus' eyes? Were they on her? Were his eyes on their shame? On ours? And it says, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest. Maybe because sometimes it takes some of us a long time to reach this moment of understanding when we recognize that we are not good enough, we're not smart enough, we're not strong enough to make ourselves into the men and the women that we want to be, much less the men and the women that God wants us to be. Maybe some of the older guys had learned that lesson. Until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And this is going to sound weird, guys, but I, I wish I could give you guys a gift. 
I wish I could give you the gift of trading places with that woman for just this next moment for what happens next. Just you and him. Because Jesus stands up and he says to you, where are your accusers? Did no one condemn you? And you say, no, Lord. And Jesus says, I don't either. Now, go and sin no more. Where are your accusers? Maybe worse than that, where are those who have heard of your sin and they judge your sin as worse than theirs? Where are all those who are going to condemn you and denounce you and vilify you and disparage you and mock you and ridicule you and drive you away from God's grace? Where are they? Gracism. How many times has my gracism made it harder for someone to experience the grace from God that I crave? How many times has your judgmentalism driven someone away from God and his grace? Because somehow we see their sin as worse than ours. And how stupid is that? Has no one condemned you? Says the only one, the only one who had the right to condemn her. Now I wonder if up until that moment she'd even realized that her accusers had left because I'm assuming that her head is down and her eyes are closed and she's praying and she's crying and immersed in her shame and she looks up and it's just Jesus. Can you imagine the emotion, your emotion, when you think you're dead? You look around and say, no one, Lord, not even you. She's still there, naked before Jesus. Not even you, Jesus. Who are you? Why? And Jesus says, not even me. Says the only one who had the right to throw the first stone. Now, it kind of feels like to a lot of us that Jesus got it wrong. He got the order wrong. Maybe the words were okay. But he should have said, go and sin no more, and then I won't condemn you. Stop sinning, and then you'll taste the grace that you crave. But he didn't. He didn't say it that way. He said, I didn't come to condemn you. In fact, I came so that the rocks that were aimed at you would hit me, he said. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And it makes no sense to us. This whole story makes no sense to us. Grace makes no sense to us. At our worst, that's the moment that we're graced. But you think your sin's too big, right? Bigger than this woman's sin, maybe. Or you think maybe that you've sinned the same sin too often. So you've out-sinned God's grace, you think, maybe. Or maybe you just think that you're a fraud. Your sins are hidden behind so many masks. And you just go through life hoping that no one will ever peek underneath those masks and see who you really are. And you fear that if God really does see everything and if God really does know everything, you don't have a shot. Would Jesus actually say to you, I don't condemn you either? No. Go live a life of grace? Can grace actually be that big? Yeah, it can. Yes, it is. 
Someday, guys, someday each one of us will stand naked before God. Physically, I don't know. But without secrets, without masks, and without excuses. And what happens next depends on what happens now in this life. So, guys, spiritually, take off your clothes, not literally. Strip away anything that you use to hide your sin because he knows. Guys, you're already there. You are alone with Jesus right now, not physically in this room, but spiritually it is you and him. This is the moment that we get it. He knows everything. There's nothing he doesn't see. There's nothing he doesn't know. The sins of your tongue, your sexual sins, your addictions, your unforgiveness, your greed, your pride, your judgmentalism. And if you listen to him, this is what you hear him say. If you hear him, this is what you hear him say. I didn't come to condemn you. I came to take the punishment you deserve. Now, go and live like a man or a woman who's been forgiven and dignified and who was loved by God. And it's at that moment when we stand before God with ruthless honesty and abject humility that we are bathed in grace. Now listen, guys, there are two groups of people who need this message. Some of us actually belong in both groups. There are some here who need grace, maybe online, who need grace. You need to connect with God, guys. You need to do, you need to find what this woman found. And some of us need to do some repenting. Maybe you've never had an encounter with Jesus like this. It's there for you. You need what she found. Others of us who call ourselves Jesus followers have actually driven people away from God because of our judgmentalism. So we have some work to do. So one more piece. Now, we don't know historically whether this naked woman became a Jesus follower. And even if she did, even if she did accept the forgiveness of her sins, she has been outed. Her scandal is no longer a secret. It's something that people are going to whisper about maybe for the rest of her life. She's likely in that world going to go to the grave with a scarlet A etched on her chest. How would she be treated if she went to a church with other Jesus followers for worship? How would she be received here? Her sins are open. They're known. Ours are hidden, right? Hers are big. Ours are little by comparison, we think, right? Sarcasm. Would she be judged here or would she be graced? Would we strengthen her connection with the God who has graced us all? Is this, is Capital City a safe place for sinners? Guys, let's our, drop our rocks and walk away. Let's embrace the people that God wants to embrace. Let's be a place of grace and truth.